I've got to tell you, I'm personally convinced that many Christians today are not experiencing the joy-filled Christian life. They may know their duty as Christians, and they may be doing it, but they may not at many points be experiencing the, the Lord, which is their strength. They seem to be working from more of a duty than a desire, more of an obligation than a dedication, paying more attention to the fruit than the root. They want to do things that they see as fruitful, but in fact, it is little more than figs on thorn bushes. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 7 through 9, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." These people were doing all the right things. They thought they were doing the religious things that they were supposed to do. But all they did is build confidence in their own abilities to do the, th the things they thought would please God, but in fact was detestable to God. Christ's death fulfilled God's will, not our efforts of sacrifice. If you would please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 5 through 10. And we will see in God's word where uh, he talks about the efforts of people. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we will um, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. For all. You see, we often have the wrong perception of worship. We first, first of all, we need to better understand what our worship is before God. And then the sacrifice to Him through our efforts. And I'm talking specifically about our formal acts of worship. Worship is a, a word that's most often associated with religion. But worship can be found in the lives of secularists and agnostics and theists. The simple truth is that everyone looks for something or someone to give their lives meaning. 
And worship reveals the somethings or someone we value most. So how is worship defined? Well, theologically understanding, there are many illustrations and, and ways to worship and, and the way it's defined. It's described as a lifestyle and attitude that comes from within. A.W. Tozer defines worship this way, and I quote, Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and powering, overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majestic which philosophers called the first cause, but which we call our Father, which art in heaven, end quote. In the last century or so, there have been many books written on the topic of church growth. But many focus on growth and not necessarily worshiping God. Many strategists and uh, 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 consultants have come up with guaranteed ways to grow your church and bring more people in the doors on Sunday morning. Yet some of the biggest, fastest-growing churches have also relatively little, long-lasting, God-honoring fruit of the people that go there. They seem to be looking more at assimilation of people to the church and to the church culture and not regeneration of the Holy Spirit, a reconciliation to God. And so the question ends up being, uh, is there a way to grow churches that is healthy, God-honoring, authentic, and lasting? Well, the answer is yes, there is. And we don't need a shelf full of books or highly paid church growth experts to show us. God gives his pattern for healthy, growing churches at the end of Acts chapter 2. And when the church is healthy, there are no stragglers. There aren't those people who come wandering in uh, at the last minute and they leave as the last song is being, pre uh, being sung. Because people of a healthy church, uh, church are primarily there to worship God. It reminds me of a story that I read about a woman. Her name was uh, Adeline Gabory. Uh, and it could never be said of Adeline Gabory's neighbors that they were less than responsible. When her front lawn grew up hip deep, they hired a local boy to mow it down. When her pipes froze and burst, they went over and shut off the water. When the mail was spilling out of the front door, they finally called the police. The only thing they didn't do was check on how uh, Adeline was doing. Well, she wasn't doing well. As a matter of fact, she was dead. Police finally broke in the side door of this little blue house, only to find the 73-year-old lady, her skeletal remains, that were laying there for perhaps up to four years. It's not really a friendly neighborhood, said her neighbor, Eileen Dugan, who was once a close friend of Gabory's, whose house just sits 
20 feet from the dead woman's house. She said, I'm as much to blame as anyone. She was alone and needed someone to talk to, but I was working with two jobs and tired of her coming over at all hours, and so eventually I stopped answering the door. But this story is unbelievable. How can someone be so disconnected with those around them? How can a person die and others not even know about it? And yet, we are a society that's becoming increasingly disconnected with each other. And that happens even within the church. For, an ex for example, a, a study conducted by the National Opinion Research Center of the University of Chicago, released in 2006, revealed that Americans have less people they can confide in than the past generations. In 1985, the average American had three people in whom they felt they could confide. In 2004, that number dropped to two. Perhaps even more striking, the number of Americans with no close friends at all rose from 10% in 1985 to 24.6% in 2004. You see, God designed us to be in a relationship with him and with one another. And I believe that the problem within the church, as far as the order of service and the, the view of what true, true uh, worship is, is that there's not a foundation set on the sufficiency of Scripture. And I believe the grand enemy of the church is a lack of su the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that the, the uh, Scripture is inerrant, but do we believe that is sufficient? And without the sufficiency of Scripture, we start to see pragmatism. And, and, and pragmatism seems to be ruling the day. You know, uh, pragmat pragmatism is if it seems right or seems to work, then do it. When we are pragmatists instead of biblicists in our theology and methodology, we have no solid foundation to build on. It constantly shifts. What seems to be working? What do we need to do? We're, we're losing people. How do we get more people? Because without a solid foundation, the materials that make up the New Testament church won't stand upright or stand as ambassadors of Christ. And so we need to reject the draw of pragmatism. And we need to embrace the sufficiency of Scripture. If we are to build on the solid foundation of this, the sufficiency of Scripture, we need to renounce the disgraceful ways of the world and build the church on Jesus Christ Himself. We must refuse craftiness, and the temptation to compromise the Word of God in order to have worldly success. We need to rely on the power of God alone that comes through the preaching and living of truth. And so with all of that in mind, let's turn to our text for this morning. It's found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 42 through 47, which will take us to the end of the chapter. Starting with verse 42. And they continued steadfastly 
in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, if you remember, remember last week, we, we saw in verses 40 and 41, uh, it was talking, talking about being made holy and set apart. The church is called the ecclesia. It's the called out assembly or congregation. And we saw that when people are converted through the Holy Spirit, they were baptized and then added to the church. New Testament believers are always assembling together to worship the Lord. They didn't separate themselves from one another and try to worship individually. They came together as a group to worship. So, folks, don't call the golf course or your tree stand or a drive to the beach or nature watching some sort of worship or even uh, uh, watching some uh, flat screen uh, preacher. Don't call that worship. That is not the true church. There's a term. You know, we all know uh, sola scriptura. There's another term, nuda scriptura. It's uh, N-U-D-A. But there's, uh, it, it actually is, instead of sola, it's solo. Thinking that all I need is my Bible. And the Holy Spirit will just tell me everything I need without having direction, without being in the group to where when you go off of what Scripture says, that you are brought back on to the sound doctrine according to apostolic preaching and teaching. So there are so many people that just think they can sit there by themselves with their Bible and the Holy Spirit's going to tell them everything. When it's properly taught, the Holy Spirit does teach. But if, if you just think you and your Bible are all you need, you will more than likely go off, off and, and go astray. But basically... The Greek word behind the New Testament uh, church is ecclesia, assembly. It means we come together. Corporate worship is uh, the first DNA fiber that we see in the New Testament. It is a fiber that is necessary. And so if you look at verse 42 again, it says, and they continued steadfastly in what? in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now keep in mind that these Jews uh, who were used to being taught by scholarly, trained religious uh, leaders of Israel, they, they were following these Pharisees and the scribes and the priests. 
uh, who love to teach. The problem is, as uh, famed uh, theologian uh, Jack Nicholson once said, you can't handle the truth. Actually, let's go to an actual uh, 20th century theologian, Dr. H.A. Ironside. He said, this group of 3,000 Jews, uh, uh, Jewish converts, were not the kind of group that went into some prayer room, bowed down, confessed the sins, and repeated a sinner's prayer to receive Christ. And then, after that, take a little literature home and think about what their next move would be. They wanted to know the Word of God. One of the real marks of a Spirit-filled church and Spirit-filled believers is that there will be an intense desire to study and learn the Scriptures, end quote. You see, as soon as people were saved, they wanted to know the truth of God's Word. In fact, they devoted themselves to that objective. That word that we see steadfastly, or in some versions it says devoting, is the Greek word proskatereo. proskatereo. And it means strongly focused and steadfast in this continual objective. Actually, the English word uh, uses two words to describe one Greek word. We see the word continued uh, steadfastly or continued devoting. Well, that's just the one word in the Greek. But you see, the, the Jews realized that they hadn't been taught properly. And now that they were truly saved, they wanted to know what the Scriptures actually said. And by the way, did you... Notice that none of them were speaking in tongues like the apostles. They wanted to know the Word of God like the apostles. And the NAS, NASB actually translates uh, verse 42. I think it's a little bit more clearly. Um, it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, that word teaching uh, is the Greek word uh, didache. And it's a word that indicates a form of systematic teaching and instruction. This wasn't just willy-nilly. There was a systematic way of teaching. One link attached to the next link. And this means that these apostles were not just sharing their personal stories about Jesus, their memories. Oh, you know what? Jesus... We went up to the mountain with them, and we did this, and oh, remember when we were fishing? That wasn't what they were telling them. They weren't telling them uh, all that they had seen God do in their lives. They were actually giving doctrinal, biblical instruction to these new believers. The New Testament church succession continues in the study of the Word of God and the doctrine taught by these apostles just as the first church did. And I believe this is one of the first things that happens with when there's genuine repentance and faith. It, it's that the, the, the new believer has a passionate, driven desire to understand the Word of God. One of the greatest indicators that you're right with God is that you want to know God. 
You want to know His Word. You want to know everything in the Bible, all the doctrines. You will end up desiring to rightly divide the Word of God like Scripture says. And you realize that it needs to be filtered through apostolic New Testament instruction. James Montgomery Boyce said, a spirit-filled church is always going to be a Bible-studying church, end quote. Whenever God's Spirit has powerfully worked and blessed a church, the Bible is carefully studied. R. Kent Hughes says, where the Spirit reigns, a love for God's Word reigns. We need to consider the importance of the Apostles' doctrine to the life of the church. The point we want to make is this. There is a body of teaching which the early church gave themselves to. They listened to it. They embraced it. They ordered their church life by it. They, and then they proclaimed it to the world. They were pressed with a responsibility to pass it on. Not to just sit there and sit on your hands just so you know more about uh, church history or church doctrine or, you know, that you, you weren't going to sit there and go, oh, I just need to learn a lot just so I am smarter than the next person. No, you need to learn so that you can press it on, take it to the next person, to take it to those who have no idea. Maybe they're saved but they're, they're still babes in the faith because they're not being taught. Maybe they're unsaved. And actually, you take the gospel of salvation to them. And that's exactly what we find in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And by the way, this is the first use of the word fellowship in the New Testament. And it's not... It's not uh, referring to some sentimental, fuzzy, warm feeling. The word fellowship in the Greek is koinonia. And it was real communion. It was really sharing. It was uh, something that was taking place between believers. The particular bent of this Greek word indicates that this was a mutual sharing. meant that every believer was contributing to the welfare of the entire group. Someone has observed that the stronger uh, your vertical relationship with God is, the stronger your horizontal relationship will be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You may, be, you may convince yourself and some others that you are really spiritual by your isolation from a group, but you'll never convince the Holy Spirit of that. And by the way, this is the same word as used for communion, koinonia. Biblical fellowship exists when there is mutual shared appreciation and application of the truth among gathering Christians. Those who enjoy a mutual relationship with one another through Jesus Christ. It may seem elementary to say, but true fellowship can only be practiced and enjoyed by people who have a common belief and experience of life from God through Jesus Christ. This is another argument for a regenerate church membership. 
before we take someone into membership, we always ask them to give their testimony of them coming to Christ. When were you born again? It's not pin it down to uh, hour and day. It is just say, I have come to the point where I repented of my sin and believed and I understood my sin was as wretched as, as God says it is. And I also understand that Christ made propitiation for those who would repent and believe. That's what we do before we take someone into fellowship. Because true Christian fellowship needs to be grounded on biblical doctrine. What the Bible says about the common life we have in God. I'm sad to say that, and I actually feel compelled to say that many Christians don't understand this. Many Christians and many churches don't see doctrine as having a connection to the matter of fellowship. In fact, there are those who view doctrine as damaging, even detrimental to church fellowship. They base their perception of fellowship on matters other than what the Bible teaches. So what needs to be present? Actually, what must be present when true Biblical fellowship is present. Well, first of all, there must be a declaration of truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Specifically, the truth must be declared about how sinners are reconciled to God, uh, uh, the Father, through Jesus Christ. Secondly, there must be a work of the Holy Spirit performed so that the hearers of the truth are and have been brought to experiment, uh, experientially know the joy and comfort that they personally have as a part of their salvation that Jesus Christ alone has secured. Third, there must be a mutual commitment on the part of the believers to live in obedience to the truth of God's Word as they hear it and affirm it. It always comes back to this, I think. We all know the Westminster Catechism, first question reads, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man, the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Fellowship or communion with God is the chief means of fulfilling the chief end. It's for this purpose that God created man in His image, that He and we might know one another, and that he might be glorified through our enjoyment of him as we respond to him in our love for him or trust in him or joy of him and our honoring of him. The goal of salvation is our fellowship with God. Salvation brings about a restoration of fellowship between God and man a fellowship that was broken back in, uh, by sin back in the Garden of Eden. The fact that Luke mentions it separately shows that biblical fellowship transcends the con uh, contemporary conception of it. Among American evangelicals, virtually any activity among people that go to church is considered Christian fellowship. 
Scripture understands this idea in a more defined and spiritual way. Fellowship or communion uh, or common union concerns who Christians are as a spiritual body formed in relationship to a triune God more than what they do. You see, it's not that it's not wrong to get together and just enjoy each other's company, but true fellowship is where it is a spiritual thing. And so as we continue in verse 42, because of this spiritual bond, they also continued in the breaking of bread. And so the first Christians in Jerusalem were expressing their inherent union with one another by knitting together their daily lives. And in this instance, it was taking meals together. Some believe Luke was referring to the observance of the Lord's Supper, while others maintain he was speaking more generally of everyday meals. I believe that both views are correct. And there's historical evidence that indicates that the early Christians often concluded their meals by observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And if you notice, here at Providence, every month we observe the Lord's Supper, but every Lord's Day we break bread together in this common way as well. That's why, folks, our fellowship time is important. How many times we, we hear people discussing the sermon, talking about the, um, all the doctrinal truths that they have uh, come to understand? You know, you have other conversation too as well, and that's fine. But see, this is important, and that ministry is important. And according to verse two, uh, 42, they were all also steadfastly continuing in prayer. You see, the members of the early uh, believing community, they were bound together by prayer. Christians not only share the same spirit, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, but they also share the same Father whom, uh, upon whom they depend and whom they look to as children of God. And for this reason, they're people who are united by prayer. The church, as a praying community, raises the important issue of corporate prayer and the distinction from private prayer. The New Testament records numerous instances of believers gathering together in prayer, and a few Christians would actually deny um, the need for the church bodies to engage in this corporate prayer. But uh, nevertheless, misunderstanding corporate prayer and how it functions has, is, is really just renders this practice lifeless and tedious. Most people think that they are there in corporate prayer to gang up on God. If we get enough people to, to uh, pray in a certain way, that God will have to change his mind. That we end up bullying God. Folks, that is not what corporate prayer is. Corporate prayer is the way that we express harmony and synergy as our, as our, we, uh, our minds and our hearts are united together for one common cause. And that's the glory of God and His will. The early church prayed corporately with one mind and one heart coming together as one person lifting up the burdens to the Father. Whether we do 
one or many, when we, when we articulate our, our prayer to God corporately, we gather and we unite together. John MacArthur says it this way, and I quote, As Christ's church, we are one wife in Scripture, uh, in Scripture metaphor with one husband. We are one set of branches connected to one vine. We are one flock with one shepherd, one king with one kingdom, one family with one father, one building with one foundation. But uniquely introduced only in the New Testament, the body of Christ is one body with one life source and one head. It is our unique identity. We are living organisms dependent on each other. Understanding the basic unity is strategic to living out the principles of fellowship in the life of the church, end quote. You see, God called us all together to share in common with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this sharing is both positionally and practically. Positionally, we share in His righteousness. Practically, we enter into a growing and expanding relationship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would, I, I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4. First John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So, continuing with verse 43, it says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Fear or awe came upon these disciples. That word fear, and in some translations is the word awe. It's both the Greek word phobos. Now, we generally get our word phobia from that. But here, it takes on a different meaning. It literally means reverence for one's husband. So it's not this trembling fear. Who is the husband of the church? As the bride as the church, we are the bride of Christ. And you see, they realized that as they became believers, they are 
now part of their bridegroom's kingdom. They realized that this was a kingdom that was going to attain a worldwide significance. This was a kingdom that was spoken by the prophets. Actually, Daniel says in uh, Daniel 2.44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. They had a sense of awe as they understood the privilege that they had. Now you remember, these are Jews. They thought they had the privilege. Now they have understanding that the privilege they have in Christ is where that initial privilege even started. They now have Christ as their anchor. Sometimes I think that we take our privileges as the people of God way too lightly because we're not impacted with our sense of of our destiny and our calling. We're not overwhelmed with the sense of the glory and majesty of the King as we stand before Him, as we see what He is doing among us. These first disciples, they understood these. It inwardly affected them. They had a fear. And their hearts were impacted so they could not be the person that they used to be. They were a new person in Christ. And now they had the privilege and a destiny that overwhelmed them. You see, we also see it says that many signs were done. In verse 43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now these signs were done through the apostles because they were signs of the apostles. In Hebrews chapter 2, we can get a sense of this. and I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Therefore, we must give more, the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. Now there again, there is no solo scriptura, no nuda scriptura. We need to give heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. But then it says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us? By those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. You see, from this 
That purpose of these signs was to confirm the word that the apostles spoke, which is now recorded in Scripture for us. Some people want these signs to continue today, but God doesn't operate the way we think He should. He gave these signs to confirm uh, the apostles, and now the word is confirmed for the church in all ages as we have the canon of Scripture. Their word recorded in the Bible can be absolutely and fully trusted. God spoke through them so that their words are truly the very word of God, infallible and without error. I'm going to give you another term. It's toto scriptura, T-O-T-A. You won't find it on your outline. Toda Scriptura. What this is affirming is that there are not some scriptures that are more authentic than other scriptures. You know, like some people go, well, you know, I have a red letter Bible. If Jesus said it, it's more affirming than the stuff that is in the black ink. No. It's not saying that, you know, the New Testament is now what we, what we read. We don't read the Old Testament No. The Word of God is in the Old Testament as much as the New Testament. A matter of fact, you won't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. That is, uh, we should believe in sola scriptura, by Scripture alone, but we also should believe in tota scriptura. All Scripture is God-breathed in its totality. To be a true disciple of Christ, you need to believe the word of the apostles. You need to be assured that their writings are inspired of God. You need to receive them as the only rule of faith and practice. And if you do not, you have no foundation to stand on. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Without the Word of God, you have nothing to test the things that you believe. Without the Word of God, you have nothing certain to believe in. Without the Word of God, you have emptiness that will be be filled with all the wrong things. You will follow contemporary prophets, and they will lead you astray by their lies. The message of Christ is self-authenticating. God always gives true disciples a certainty that his word is true. He has authenticated it to his church in past ages, and now he gives us divine assurance and confidence in it. There will always be this inward change of awe and of certainty that the message that we heard from Scripture is the Word of God and we have life in it. And with this inward change, there will always be a corresponding outward change. It's impossible to be transformed within by the Lord and not at the same time be transformed without. 
when you are truly caught up in the reality that you are actually part of Christ's glorious kingdom, you will be in awe over that. You will have this reverent fear of that. You will always give yourself for others and for the sake of his church. And that's what we see in verses 44 and 45 of our text. There it says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Here again, John MacArthur says this, quote, Was this com communal living? No, not at all. No, when it says that they had all things in common, it simply means that they held whatever it was they possessed lightly in their hands, and if anyone else needed it, they released it easily. They began, if necessary, selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all as anyone might have need. MacArthur continues by adding, By the way, this never happened again in the New Testament in any other church, which then speaks against the idea that the church is supposed to be the fountainhead of social justice and some kind of Marxism. This never happened again. You have to understand that there are thousands of pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem who can't go home. Why? Because there is only uh, this is where the only church was. It was there, and they needed to stay. But who's going to meet their needs? But they had, uh, but they were so all together in the unity and love of the Holy Spirit that they were willing to be part with, in, or, or willing to part with anything they possessed to meet someone else's need. End quote. You see, they not only had to make great sacrifices they did all in order for to uh, uh, help those who were in need and there were a lot of them you have to remember that the jews um, controlled much of their livelihood judaism was allowed as a, a a practice a religious practice in the roman government and uh, there were some other religions but not a religion that that called anything but caesar lord and so the, the uh, Christianity was not really, uh, uh, later on, wasn't really liked all that much in, in the Roman government. But you see, the Jews, they found a way to live pretty comfort, comfortably within the confines of the government. And so these Jewish leaders, they had control over the Jewish people. And they had decided that if anyone followed this Christ... Put them out of the synagogue. And you think, well, okay. So they put them out of the synagogue. But you see, as a result, those who followed Christ often lost their jobs. They, if they worked for someone, they were sometimes fired. If they ran a business, they were, uh, uh, the, these leaders told people not to patronize, or patronize them. And if they were tradesmen, nobody would hire them. These young believers, they were so earnest in their love for each other that as need arose, they sold their possessions. That Greek word possessions is the, uh, the word uh, katema, 
which means the houses or lands. And then it, it says they also sold their goods, it, which is the Greek word um, hupark, hup, huparxis. And this would have been the, the more portable things, the, the little trinkets and, and stuff that they owned. And it's not that they all renounce the ownership of property, and some people try to push that onto this text, but it's not saying that. It, it was, if they saw needs, they, they supported uh, the people who had the needs. This wasn't to try to make everyone live at the same financial level. Not at all. This was saying that, you know what, we'll do what it takes for you to get by. We'll, we'll do what it takes to help you out in this so that you can worship uh, the Lord Jesus Christ within the church body. And so, as a Christian, we need to be willing to sometimes go out of our way for our brothers and sisters as need arise. We need to have love that, uh, for these people that causes us to truly give to each other. And, and it's not a love that remains deep in the heart where nobody can see it. It's, it's, it's actually a love that expresses itself in sacrifice for others. It's a love that stops pretending that if you don't see a brother's need, uh, you don't have to meet it. But then we see this phrase in verse 44, all things in common. Common is the word koinos. And it means to be belong to like-minded people, to be equally yoked. It's like when we get married, we look for a mate that is like-minded uh, not only with us, but like-minded with the bride of Christ. And it's the root word of the, uh, the word fellowship, koinonia. We saw that earlier, and that can translate either fellowship or communion. You see, the inward change in a true disciple will also be manifest uh, by a joyful fellowship with other believers in day-to-day -day living. And so, we see this very thing in verse 46 of our text. It says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. That, that word uh, one accord is the one word in the Greek. It's humothumadon. Uh, and it's, uh, remember when, when uh, in chapter 1, when the 120 disciples of Christ gathered in one accord at Jerusalem, waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. They were, they were all together. We saw that word speaks of one passion, one purpose. This is not the unity that comes when we agree not to talk about differences. So many people go, well, we can agree to disagree, and that there's some sort of unity in there. This is unity that comes because we are united in our thoughts, united in our passion, united in our passion for Christ and his kingdom. Christ and his purposes was what actually did unite them. They all had his glory and kingdom in, as their main agenda, all because they had been gripped with the reality that they were part of his glorious kingdom. And because they were uh, united together, they spent a lot of time together. 
They went to the temple and worshipped together. They ate in each other's homes, breaking bread from house to house. They wanted to be with people. They wanted to learn and walk as Christ's uh, disciples. I got to tell you, I'm really excited when I hear about uh, you folks inviting each other over to other, others' homes and wanting to spend time with others even after church. We need this. We need to share our lives with other believers, not just our tithes and our offerings, our lives. We don't need church programs to do this. So many people, well, we need a program that... No! That would be done by compulsion, being made to do it. This is something that you should desire to do. Be ready to open your house. Be ready to get involved with other people. This can't just be a program that makes you do it. It must be your heart that makes you want to do it. There's a beauty that's characterized by these early disciples in the doing of all these things in the way they did them. And we see the way they did them was with gladness. That, that's the Greek word uh, agalis. Agaliasis, which means with exaltation and extreme joy. This isn't just with, with you know, yeah, that, I'm, I'm happy. No, this is extreme joy. And then we see the, that phrase, and simplicity of heart. The simplicity, uh, the word there is, uh, is aphelites, and, and it means singleness with a single mind, singleness of, of mind. And then the word heart, we all know, cardia. We get all of our, our uh, uh, medical terms from that, the cardia, the meaning the heart. But here it's the soul, as far as it is affected and stirred in a good or bad way. The soul is actually the seat of sensibilities and affections and emotions, our desires, our appetites, our passions. That's what the heart is when it speaks of that in, in uh, uh, Scripture. We actually see the Hebrew equivalent of this word in Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 12. It says, Also the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. And so you notice here, it was the hand of God that gave, uh, gave this to Judah. He also gives this to his New Testament church. You know, folks, they weren't putting on a show. They were just people living together as people who really loved each other. They wanted to do these things. They weren't duplicitous. They, they, oh, this, this is what they wanted. This is what makes up the life of the church. This isn't just saying, hey, I'm going to go to church on Sunday because I think it's a good thing. I'm going to church because I'm, this is a family re reunion, folks. This is where I want to be. And it all comes down from being so full of Christ and gratitude for what he has done for you. You can't help but be around others and serve others. If you think that you have gratitude but you don't serve others, you need to check yourself. You honestly don't. 
But finally, in verse 47, we read, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Here we have to understand that they did all this with praise to God. If what I have said is true, that it was their sense of awe in Christ and what he had done that caused them to live together in unity and love, then it's no wonder that their lives together were filled with praise to God. That's their focus. They weren't just trying to be good people and prove something. They weren't just trying to make it look like, yeah, I'm a good person. You know, they were, they were living it out. They were filled with praise to God and His Son. And that was stirred up among them. And it stirred up among, among them love and good works. If they were pouring out their lives for each other because the love of Christ constrained them, it would only be expected that they would serve each other. And not only with their mouths, but with their actions. And their mouths would be full of praise to the Lord. This is the engine that drove them. This is the engine that drives any church. And that's the wonderful part of being part of Christ's church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And folks, we are part of it. And what a blessing it is to enter into the fullness of the, of the blessing of having a church body. To being able to come in here and praise God with all like-minded people. Verse 47 tells us that these early disciples were praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their church daily those who were being saved. The members of the early church weren't about a bunch of ascetic hermit, hermits who gave up their food and, and lived at a meager level but didn't have joy. No, it says that they had joy as they got together. These were new brothers and sisters in Christ. A relationship with Christ actually will change your social life totally, forever. As a matter of fact, you may lose most of your old friends when you enter into this new family. And by the way, most of those old friends, they say they will love you until you say the wrong thing. Then they, they will scatter. And you know what a lot of times the wrong thing is? I'm now a follower of Jesus Christ and I intend to live my life to His glory. That can be the wrong thing. But you see, in this group, there is no age distinction, gender distinction, ethnic distinction, social distinction, marital distinction. We are all together in one accord. And that's what this whole first century church was. They were looking for favor, uh, 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 or they were having favor with all kinds of people. You see, folks, when people see us do this, they might they might turn from us initially. But when they see that and then they hear the gospel, they will go, hot dog, I can be part of that. 
And they will sit there, and, that will, and, and many people will be saved. But we have to realize it's not our fellowship that saves. It's God who saves. It's his gospel who saves. We, God adds to the number. I'll tell you, there, I, I would like nothing more than to have every single one of these seats filled. But not for the glory of Providence Bible Church, but to the glory of God. And he will build this church and add to its numbers as he desires. We don't add to the church. God does. It's not our skill or ability or eloquence and power. It's his. And the true disciple sees the importance of having a pastor, teacher lead the church. He must lead it through faithful teaching of God's word. In all situations, even the most difficult, we need to continue steadfast in this. These people leaving Bible-believing church, churches where the pastor is faithfully teaching and preaching the Word of God, and what they turn to is an entertainment-oriented, program-oriented, man-centered uh, church, that will only weaken you spiritually and it will weaken the cause of Christ in you. We need to come together and pray the Word of God. Pray that the Word of God is being preached and that you come with power in your soul because of that. We pray that the Word of God is preached and you find refreshment and strength that revives every single member of the church. You ever walk in here, you think, oh man, I'll tell you what, I, on my way here, I, I halfway tripped down the steps and I just, uh, everything went wrong today. Nothing was right. And the moment you walk in, you start to see your brothers and sisters. And you go, man, I can't think of where I'd rather be. Here, with like-minded people that will come together, not to sit there and, and help me in my all my goo, but to come right alongside me and encourage me in the faith. Fellowship is God's design for the church. It's not isolation isolationism or individualism. God gave us the gift of fellowship because together we glorify him more than we do as we're apart. There is no biblical reason why a person who professes that they are saved should not be a member of the Lord's church and attend the services and endeavor um, and the endeavors of the church. Many folks give unscriptural excuses why they're not going to join a church. Well, I've been hurt too often. Well, I didn't like the music. Well, I didn't like this. The Bible gives no, no reason for that. In fact, it is the desire of God's people to submit to his will and follow the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. And God has given many gifts to his church. 
we are responsible to discover and use these gifts for which God has shaped us. Arnold Glasgow said, make your life a mission, not an intermission. Your life should be given to the service of God. You shouldn't just sit there and waiting for the day that you meet Christ. Too many people only go to worship services. They don't think they have any responsibility to serve God in His church. Vance Havner said, Too many people are willing to sit at God's table, but not work in His field. God is glorified when people are loyal to His Word, when they are loyal to those who preach it faithfully. I just pray that God would increase the membership of this church here in this place as He desires. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would call Your church back to the core of, of the commitment which reflect Your Gospel and the loving commitment of Your Son. Call us back to Your Word. Help us from being distracted by the world's foolish models. All this quick, easy church growth that doesn't honor You. Lord, make us a people. The people that You would have us to be. We ask that you would superintend the business meeting. That we would put away petty or selfish, self-serving ideas. And that we would work together. And remember, even this part of church needs to be all to your glory and honor. And we pray this in Jesus' most glorious and precious name. Amen.